Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. GameStop games, regulators, politicians, and central bankers all watching the market madness. Unfriending unrest, Facebook to reduce the platform's political content, and supercycle starting, iPhone demand fuels Apple's record revenues. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Thursday, a day when the speculative surge in heavily shorted stocks like GameStop has gone from being a curious market story to a drama making news headlines around the world. And with it, perhaps the realization that some kind of seismic shift in financial markets may be taking place, a combination of a social media platform and easier access to simple trading platforms has allowed smaller retail investors to tackle the titans of finance. We could call it the return of Occupy Wall Street in a different form. And this time it's got more power, at least for now. Global investors, I can tell you, are clearly unsettled. U.S. futures highly volatile pre-market after seeing their worst day of trade actually since October in Wednesday's session. Weakness in Europe and Asia overnight too. A mixed batch of tech earnings and vaccine rollout concerns also hitting sentiment admittedly. The broader markets may be unsettled, but GameStop is looking to add to gains. AMC though, the cinema chain a little bit softer. GameStop rose more than 100% in Wednesday's session. AMC rose more than 200%, just to give you perspective on that down 23%. The speculative surge now also spreading to names in Europe and in Asia too. The popular Wall Street Bets chat room that day traders use to discuss these stocks will now be shut to non-invited guests. Maybe that perhaps helps slow some of the speculative fever that we've seen. We'll be talking to the founder of Wall Street Bets Reddit page later on in the program. But at its heart, we could make this a story of empowerment for those who haven't had the chance to make money in financial markets as easily as the established players, and now they have. But of course, the risks are vast. Whenever stock prices detach from the underlying fundamentals, they eventually revert and money gets lost and people get hurt. Let's get to the drivers and to GameStop, the stock everyone's watching from the Federal Reserve to the White House. I don't want to comment on a particular uh, company or or day's market activity or uh, things like that. It's just not uh, really something that I would uh, typically comment on. Secretary Yellen and others are monitoring uh, the situation. It's a good reminder, though, that the stock market isn't the only measure of the health of our, econo- of our economy. Christine, what is going on here when the Federal Reserve is being... I mean, we are laughing. There are so many big issues to discuss, but I called it a seismic shift. And I do feel like we should talk about this. We are seeing money 
being pumped into stocks like this. Yep. And people behind the scenes and on these social media platforms are talking about taking on the elites, being yep. willing to lose money if it means they can tackle. And I do see a pattern here with some of the other things we've been talking about and dealing with, at least over the past few weeks, if not it longer. Isn't, it is. I, and when you said Occupy Wall Street, that is just right on. In a way, it's just the new iteration of Internet populism, that these people can get together on the social media platform and, and decide that they're all for the same cause. And the cause in this particular case is taking down the short sellers. And, and from what I can tell, and I've been covering this pretty extensively for the past few days, no one feels sorry for the big hedge funds who are losing money here, right? No one is crying, <laughs> crying for more, more, more often than not, they're saying this is just desserts for, for what is a real cutthroat part of the business. And this is a way for the small guy to have a voice, quite frankly. And, and that's what you're seeing here. I also think there's another part that has empowered this, and that is the trend over the last year to free online brokerage accounts. You don't have to pay $7.99 anymore to make a trade. I mean, that is something that used to always hold me back. I'd think about, well, do I want to make just buy a few shares of a stock if I have to pay $7.99? Uh, you don't have to pay anything in your Schwab account or in your TD Ameritrade or in your E-Trade or your Robinhood account. So if somebody wants to sit there and pull the trigger, they can with no immediate um, financial consequence. Also, everyone's talking about this. This morning, I talked to a man whose son, 25 years old, made $20,000 in three days and paid off his student loans. That story spreads like wildfire. And there are a lot of people talking about like this is some sort of a get rich quick scheme more than an investment. And he's one of the lucky ones. My fear here, and it goes back to your point, I think, about no one feeling sorry for the hedge funds. There will be people that get into this late. Yes. There will be people that are simply doing this and they don't understand the fundamentals. They, they've not captured the enormous run up that they've seen and they get in late. And then we, as I made the point, eventually these bubbles and it is a bubble when you look at the chart here, it's totally dissociated from any form of fundamentals. It pops and people lose money. And, and I do fear that those are then the people that go to the government and say, hang on a second. You know, I, I, I wasn't protected. I didn't understand. <laughs> there are huge risks here. You know, it is a democratization of Wall Street, which is seen as an elite insider's game. But then there's also the risk when you open it up broadly like that, that right. um, not knowing the consequences could be dangerous. And it's always the last lead, the last person in who is the person who gets uh, uh, hurt the most. So I, I always am worried about people who jump on the bandwagon. You know, I always say, I always say, you know, you want to focus on your 529, your 401k or your IRA. And when that is fully funded and you have play money, fine play with your play money but you know you need you need to have a, a financial strategy not a get rich quick, quick scheme and this is also not a lottery ticket this is some sort of distortion in the market that's getting an outsized amount of interest because it is just so wacky and wild even the fed chief being <laughs> asked about it but you know buyer beware please buyer beware yeah this is this is not, in my mind, investing. This is not long-term no. wealth building. This is a get-rich scheme. And that's great if you manage to get in and you get out and you take profits and you're okay. But I do fear for those that get caught in this. And of course, the industry itself is saying, and this is what's fascinating, going to the SEC now and saying, hey, protect us because this is a <laughs> 21st century style pump and dump scheme. And I think this is, is what, yeah, this is what the regulators will have to be asking questions of, not of the big guys once again, but of the power of the retail investment community, if indeed they are colluding to distort the price. And we're going to be discussing this later on in the show. We're going to be discussing Good. this, I feel, for a long time, Christine. Great to have you with us. Thank you. you. Too.
Christine Romans there. Now from Reddit to the world's largest social media company, Facebook, reporting record sales and profit in the fourth quarter. Thanks to a boom in advertising around the holidays, revenues jumped 33% from a year earlier. Net income soaring some 53%. Also, CEO Mark Zuckerberg says Facebook will permanently stop recommending political groups to its users and plans to reduce the political content in its news feeds. CNN chief media correspondent Brian Stelter joins us now. Brian, great to have you with us. You know, when I read this, it felt a little bit like the corporates that said, you know, we're going to suspend political donations. That's like me saying I'm not going to buy a Christmas tree and Christmas lights in January, nine oh. months until Christmas, quite frankly. But what do we think of this? Movie right, right Facebook? after a U.S. presidential election, Facebook Bingo. all of a sudden says it'll yes. deprioritize politics. Mark Zuckerberg does say this will roll out globally. He he does say this is a big change for Facebook, but he has made similar claims before. So I, I agree with Julia, we should heap some skepticism onto this news. Uh, I, I do get the sense, though, Zuckerberg having built this machine that is also a radicalization engine uh, that is distorting politics around the world, is now backing away from the table and, and having some regrets. He said on the earnings call yesterday, we're going to focus even more on being a force for bringing people closer together. OK, he said one of the top pieces of feedback that we're hearing right now from our community is that people don't want politics and fighting to take over their experience on the services. Uh, I would say that that feedback he's hearing is, has been coming in for years, and it is, mm. this move is probably years late. Uh, but the notion uh, that Facebook should not be a political chat room, a place where people fight about QAnon and crazy conspiracy theories, uh, if he actually acts on this and makes real changes, it may improve the, uh, the health and well-being of the Facebook world, which, as we've seen, Julia, is also the real world. Yeah, and let's try and uh, reduce the echo chamber effect where everyone only hears views that agree with their own and actually don't listen to other people, perhaps, which, which would help too. You know, right. Brian, I remember when the antitrust hearings were going on and you and I were talking about the idea of looking at how the big tech companies impinge on each other's businesses in order to understand, engage the power that they have. So it was quite fascinating to hear Facebook sort of whinging about Apple's potential rule changes on uh, their third party app collecting of data to say, look, we're going to allow people to perhaps opt out. And Facebook saying, hey, this is going to hurt the small businesses and their ability to advertise on our platform. What do we make of this? Yeah, this is very rare to see Zuckerberg, you know, one big tech CEO, directly calling out Apple and Tim Cook. Uh, normally, these, these things are handled much more... Uh, Delicately, Delicate. quietly, you know, <laughs> it's really remarkable to see Zuckerberg on the earnings call again, calling out Apple, saying, hey, Apple claims they're acting in people's best interest. But really, this is a, a self-ish agenda. This is about Apple's benefit. And, and we'll see if Apple responds and, and, and do kind and how Apple responds to this. But I, I, it reminds me of the upcoming movie Godzilla versus King Kong, where it's Apple, it's, it's uh, Facebook. They're both claiming to try to protect the, the cities, the little guys, trying to protect the people, the populations. But it's really these two monsters of uh, giant companies going at it, going at each other. Yeah, and let's call that like, Apple Godzilla in this case is going to say, look, we care about privacy and we're just going to be um, selling monster amounts of uh, iPhones, 5G right, iPhones, which right, is exactly. exactly what they did. Brian? Thank you so much for that. Thanks. Let's talk about Apple. Also reporting its most profitable quarter ever. Revenue for the holiday quarter up more than 20% to an incredible $111 billion. As I mentioned, strong sales of the iPhone 12, Apple's first 5G device, were behind the blowout earnings. But other things too. Paula Monica joins us now with the details. We've long been talking about this super cycle 
upgrades and purchases for Apple beginning. Paul, is that what we're seeing in these numbers? We're definitely seeing that, Julia. I mean, you've had Apple's iPhone sales, and they don't break it down by specific model, but it stands to reason that upgrades to the 12 probably led this surge. Nearly $60 billion in revenue just from the iPhone, more than expected, a huge jump about you know 17% increase from a year ago. So it is clear that a lot of people that might be sitting there with their iPhone 8s, like me, sadly still, the 10, they might be finally realizing that it's time to upgrade. They may not have jumped from a 7 or 8 to a 10 or even to an 11, but people with the 8, 10, and 11 are finally realizing that, you know what, the 12 looks pretty good. Let's upgrade. Let's buy it. And you're seeing this gigantic surge in sales as a result. iPhone 8, Paul, does that even still work? It still works, amazingly <laughs> enough. I have to you know, Just check crank it. the wheel a little bit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. You hear the cogs. Um, there are a couple of things in this I noticed. What issues in China? The revenues surging more than 50% in China, a record number of people upgrading their iPhones, which is one of the key things here, but also benefiting from one of the huge challenges, of course, that, that COVID brought, and that's people working from home. Half of the customers who purchased Macs or iPads in the quarter were new to those products. These are incredibly bullish signals, I think, for Apple. Yeah, definitely. The work from home environment that many of us all find ourselves in, as you can see, I'm not in the studio right now, obviously is benefiting Apple because it, it does lead to this ripple effect, you know, through the entire uh, product chain for them. It's not just people buying iPhones. People are buying Macs because they need to be more productive at home. There are still, you know, decent sales for iPads, which can be used for, you know, the school and, and work as well. So I think that Apple is benefiting from work from home, and it is not just the U.S. trend, obviously. It is China as well. And what's notable with China is that, obviously, relations between uh, the U.S. and China have been frosty, to put it mildly, for the past couple of years with uh, the Trump administration. And it may not change all that much under President Biden. I mean, maybe the tone will. He'll probably be a little bit less publicly antagonistic, but people don't expect Biden to necessarily lie down versus China with regards to the economy and big trade issues. So it is telling that a lot of Chinese consumers, even though they have options from homegrown rivals, are still buying iPhones. Yeah, business carries on regardless, or at least it does its best to, despite the uh, political overtures. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. The European Union insists that AstraZeneca provides an alternative way to deliver the vaccines delayed due to production issues in Europe. The EU suggested the drug maker should divert doses from the UK production chain. Melissa Bell joins us from outside the factory in Belgium that's making AstraZeneca's vaccines for the EU. And CNN has learned that the EU conducted an inspection of the site on Wednesday. Melissa, great to have you with us. I believe there were so-called constructive talks between EU officials and AstraZeneca last night too, but no real breakthrough on how to tackle this disagreement. 
That's right, Julia. Still a sense of frustration coming mm. out of EU officials at uh, first the lack of clarity about just how substantial the shortfall will be. We understand that it'll be about 60% for the first quarter, but beyond that, uh, EU spokesmen uh, saying that they really don't have that much clarity about how bad it will be beyond that. Now, we heard earlier this week, of course, uh, Julia from Ursula van der Leyen saying, look, the EU means business when it comes to this. They're going to make sure that big pharma groups deliver the vaccines they promised, stick to their contractual, contractual agreements, and perhaps a real sign of how serious the EU is about this is that uh, inspection that you mentioned here at this site. Now, we've had it confirmed to us that it was yesterday that the Belgian Medicines Agency, at the request of the European Union, Julia, came here to inspect the site in order, essentially, to verify what the CEO of AstraZeneca had explained. According to him, the shortfalls in getting the AstraZeneca vaccine to the EU were the result of uh, production problems at this particular site, yields from uh, the cell cultures that were simply not as big as they were at other sites. That's what the Belgian Medicines Agency came here to get to the bottom of yesterday. They will now produce a report that could take several days to get out. But the fact that it happened, Julia, I think speaks of just how bad the blood has become between AstraZeneca and the European Union over this. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very awkward. And you've got to go back to your population and say, I know you're hanging on in there, but you've got to wait a bit longer for these precious vaccines. Challenges all round. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that update there. All right, we're going to take a break, but still to come on First Move, the man behind Wall Street Bets. We're joined by the founder of the GameStop Saga Reddit Group and Boosting Spirits. Diageo saw unexpected sales growth as U.S. drinkers turned to tequila in the second half of 2020. We've got the company CEO later on the show. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stock futures have turned higher after shedding more than 2% Wednesday. That's the picture that we're seeing, but still clearly a lot of nervousness over how the market melee pitting short-term retail investors against established Wall Street players will ultimately end. That nervousness clear from the VIX volatility index. That soared 60% yesterday. That was one of the biggest jumps ever. And the last thing, of course, the U.S. economy needs is added uncertainty. First time U.S. jobless claims coming in at 847,000 last week. Also the latest U.S. GDP numbers out today, too. The economy growing at an annualized rate of 4% in the last quarter. That's much slower than the torrid 33% bounce back during the summer. All right, let's talk about the GameStop saga already having wider political ramifications too. Senator Elizabeth Warren demanding that U.S. regulators rein in the hedge funds and the private equity firms that she says has treated the market like a casino. Perhaps no surprise there, but Jordan Belfort, who's the Wolf of Wall Street trader convicted of stock manipulation during the dot-com boom, told Richard Quest last night on Quest Means Business that the government will be forced to take action. The SEC and NEC are playing catch-a-ball. They're always trying to figure out how do you stop it. So eventually, they will do something here, and they'll come up with some laws or circuit breakers that don't allow this to happen. But that could take three to six months. It will eventually, I believe, stop, and it should. The talk on Wall Street today is that the SEC, the regulator, is now hearing from hedge funds pleading for some form of action. Jacob Frankel joins us now. He's a partner at the Washington, D.C. law firm Dickinson Wright, and he's a former SEC senior counsel. Jacob, fantastic to have you on the show. I want to break this down, actually, into three things, if we can. There's 
The first thing, which is the the sort of market volatility and the soaring of these specific share prices. Then we've got the action and the behaviours of short sellers in the market and the role they play. And then we've got the Reddit revolt, those on social media that were talking about buying these stocks. Can we start there? From an SEC perspective, do you see any form of manipulation or or malpractice in what was done there for those retail investors? Julie, I think I think the best way to sort of put it all together is when you have this kind of market activities, market volatility, the SEC's enforcement division certainly is going to investigate. The existence of an investigation does not mean that there is a violation of the securities laws, but I can easily see the the enforcement division really looking at three things: fraud, manipulation, and again, we're talking about a New York Stock Exchange listed stock, so there's a specific statute within the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 that actually defines manipulation, and that's certainly something that they will look at. And we'll also look at whether there were enough investors somehow to be perceived as forming a group that may actually give rise to a group disclosure obligation, which on the other hand, you can argue, well, that's usually for affecting change within a company, in, whether it be for corporate governance or other purposes, and that's not really the purpose here. I think fundamentally what the SEC is looking at is what and, and needs to know from a regulatory perspective is what is going on here. There's plenty of regulation in place to protect all investors, whether it be the funds, whether short or long, whether in the individual investors. But you know, one of the things that I've been advocating for, and I still do, I mean, look, overnight pre-trading, the stock hit $450 a share. I mean, you look at the fundamentals, there's a complete disconnect. You know, are we moving away from fundamentals being important? These are all issues that the SEC does need to grapple with. I don't know if it's more regulation, um, but I do think there is scrutiny and there needs to be a real focus at the SEC level as to not how, how to stop it necessarily, because we all, we've seen momentum trading. Momentum trading is not going to become illegal. It's really more a matter of what is going on here and are there market phenomena? Do the circuit breakers really work or are they sort of old school in the current market? And what's the real motivation behind this trading? A lot of questions, good questions, important questions that I think can be solved in part by the SEC imposing a trading suspension. And to be clear, while the statute says it's for 10 days, the SEC could also, it says up to 10 days. So the SEC easily could step in, impose a one or two day trading suspension to try to create some order and stability in the market. But when you've got a social media group and a bunch of people, and I want to go back to your very important point, I think, about when it's a group of individuals talking about doing something. And if they're not actually talking about the fundamentals, they're just talking about perhaps tackling the elites, whether that starts to look like collusion to um, adjust a share price of a stock away from the fundamentals, um, whether that does start to look like something the SEC needs to investigate. Um, But isn't this the point? you raise you raise a great you re, you raise a great issue. I think that's one that the SEC is really going to grapple with, because the SEC is not is not going to step in and regulate free speech. I mean, you know, but nevertheless, message boards historically have been a vehicle for stock manipulation. So these are the dynamics that the SEC is going to de- to deal with. I mean, you know, merely let's assume just for the sake of oversimplifying. You know, this is a movement that is a combination of anti-short and anti-wealth. You know, but, does that in and of itself justify 
regulation. You know, the fact is these are just new and different market forces that are at work, but where the SEC's mission is, is investor protection. The SEC wants to maintain fair and orderly markets. And the question is if there are now phenomena that are upsetting the ability to maintain fair and orderly markets, that's where the SEC needs to look at approaches to you know, intervening. And, and the simplest way to do that is by creating the SEC version of a trading halt. And it can do so for a short period of time, but assert itself as saying there needs to be clarity as to the information that is in the marketplace right. that's causing this stock to move. Because this is the key, I think. And I understand your point about not limiting free speech, but where does not limiting free speech and then identifying something that's pump and dump, 21st century style, 2021 style pump and dump? And, and this is the key. Right. Well, look, Julia, we can, let's, let's dial, dial the clock back nine months you know, to the SEC using its trading and suspension authority very vigorously in connection with stock manipulations involving COVID-19 solutions. You know, right. the SEC brought 35 to 40, 40 trading suspensions back you know, last year. This is a different phenomenon, but we also have a lot of new entrants into the market who, are, who seem to be wanting to impact the market for different reasons. And while our focus is on GameStop, we're already seeing this occurring with other securities. And it comes back to the fundamental question of, to your point, is there manipulation? That will be the focus of an SEC investigation, but we won't know the results of that for a year to 18 months. And meanwhile, we have, a, because of the ability to access information to communicate so freely and so quickly and impact the market, I think we really, are, that is why the SEC needs to move quickly to make a statement and to me again i don't it's not a lobbying um it's really just my opinion is yeah. a trading suspension to uh, you know to accomplish let's make sure there is full and fair information in the marketplace about this issuer that's informing the decisions that is within the sec's administrative it's not enforcement administrative authority you know, it's funny when I see all the emotion and the anger and some of what's led to this, some not all, admittedly, I just I don't feel like a cooling off period will work. But it's a fascinating discussion. I will never be forgiven if, Jake, if I don't get quickly to ask you your view. And we have about 30 seconds, whether there is enough protections against short sellers and their behavior in this market. Some think they are helping smaller investors from getting caught out with bad companies. Others say, you know, they're anti-business and they're trying to make business fail. Is there enough regulation against short selling? Well, the, the question, in all fairness, makes a presumption that the shorts do not have an important role in the market. I believe that the shorts do have an important role in the market, which is to ensure that there is a proper pricing mechanism that exists. So I think there is plenty of protection. I don't think that the regulators should be stepping in and preventing short selling. To me, there's a difference between short sellers who do serve a constructive, meaningful purpose if they believe there is fraudulent activity in the market or security is overpriced. That's the, you know, that's the balance. That's the battle that goes on all, all the time. And what I call fraud shorts, those who are putting out materially false right. misleading information for the purpose of driving down the stock price, but at the same time, that happens on the long side too. 
So I, I do not think it, it would be reasonable or fair to create additional regulations. You know, this is a sophisticated market. It's a free market and one in which both shorts and longs have a right to participate. Yeah. Jacob, great to have you with us. Oh, there's going to be some debating over the next few months. Jacob Frankel, a partner at the Washington DC Law Firm, keeps you in business, sir. Dickinson Wright, thank you. After the break on First Move, the founder of Reddit's Wall Street Bets is GameStop a blip or a statement or the start of something much bigger. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are open for trade this Thursday, and we do have a higher open, but of course, trading was volatile pre-market, so we'll watch this space. The action on U.S. markets will be watched by a wider global audience, I think, today as we track the speculative shares that have soared into the stratosphere over the past week, as we've been discussing. Looks like the air has been taken out of some of those well-known names like GameStop and AMC. Look at that. Both are lower in early trade this morning, but still sitting on huge, huge year-to-take gains. We'll call this consolidation. Well-established tech names are active too. After a mixed batch of earnings last night, Tesla, Facebook and Apple are mixed in early trading. Facebook at this moment, the only one higher. All right, the Wall Street Bets Reddit page has been at the center of the GameStop frenzy. It's a trading forum with over 4 million followers who share information and chat on trading companies like GameStop. Some say it feels more like gambling than financial analysis. On Wednesday, it was briefly taken private by moderators because of technical issues. Joining us now is Jamie Rojadinsky. He's the founder of Wall Street Bets, and he founded it nine years ago, but did step away from it last year. He's also the author of Wall Street Bets, How Boomers Made the World's Biggest Casino for Millennials. Ha, Jamie, great to have you with us, aptly named in the book. And actually... You did predict, I think, some of what we're seeing here with these Redditors talking about buying these stocks that were heavily shorted. But did you ever imagine this could happen when you founded the platform? Uh, you know, I, like I said, I, I predicted the trajectory where things were going, but by no means did I predict, uh, predict the, the timing of the magnitude. This thing has happened so quickly, so fast. I think the... the uh, turning point was when I saw yesterday the White House was commenting on this story. I, I can't imagine that I ever envisioned this happening. You've been quoted as calling this a train wreck happening in real time. What do you mean by a train wreck? Uh, you know, there's a lot of forces at play that have just never been tested. There's a, there's a lot of people looking and commenting on this story, looking for precedent before, and there just isn't. There's It's it's too different. The dynamics, there's too many people, the technology, the the. Uh, social component of it and, and the regulation, which quite frankly, I think was written at a time that wasn't able to predict this type of thing either. So we're, what we're going to see or what we're seeing is kind of this collision between uh, a system which is clearly not behaving the way it should be behaving, yet nobody's prepared to handle it on the regulatory side, the government side or, or on the actual uh, forum itself. We've just had... Um... A senior council member formerly at the SEC saying that there's enough regulations in place for everyone here to protect them. But I, I kind of agree with you. I do see a, a pretty seismic shift here. And it's a combination of social media platforms like Reddit that allow people to talk about what they're going to do and to debate these things and to collectively make a decision to do something combined with what we're calling the democratization of access to financial stocks through platforms that for the most part are free. The, it's created a sort of a perfect storm that's allowed the power of the people to take on hedge funds in the way that we've seen. That's correct. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of 
talk about how this resembles the 90s and how there was the, the dot-com bubble and how there were chat rooms at those days where people would discuss things in, uh, in a similar fashion. But this is, this is fundamentally different because uh, no longer are these people placing base, uh, bets on, on uh, you know, a sports game or a horse race. They're, they're placing bets on a market in a way that they're actually affecting the odds of the outcome. The, the, the numbers are so big and the access, which is the key to your question, is the biggest part because this is so easy, free, readily available, uh, completely gamified on, on on people's cell phones. They're able to instantly get get in there, participate, and start using these these sophisticated uh, leveraged tools that they're able to 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 exploit the asymmetry of money. Right, a lot of people, mm. little money, but they're forcing the big guys to 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 uh, you know they're forcing the hands of the big guys. Yeah, it's kind of sexy making lots of money. And some people are making real amounts of money, paying off school fees, paying off mortgages. It's sexy also when the headlines say a hedge fund has got caught on the wrong side of a trade and now needs bailing out for, for, for billions of dollars by friends in the industry. Jamie, but at some point the bubble will pop and people will lose money. Is this a real movement that will go on? Because we are seeing it in stocks beyond GameStop. Or do you think when people start to really lose money, um, then they'll go, hang on a second, I didn't know what I was doing, and it all fizzles. Let me challenge you in, in your, the framing of Please. your question. This whole bubble popping is a boomer mentality, right? Uh, th- what is a bubble? Oh, thank mean? you. A bubble, you know, it's just this <laughs> idea that the, that the stocks are going to change direction. You know what's going to happen when this, quote, bubble pops? In other words, when the stock starts falling? These people are going to switch to buying puts, which is a you know a bet that the money that the price is going to go down, and they're going to make money on the way back down as well. The bubble to them is just, hey, what direction should we buy today? Should we buy up or down? And they're they're agnostic as to the, to, to what happens. There's no none of these people are buying the shares; they're buying stock options. Not all of them, Jamie. Come on. I agree with you that there are a lot of smart people that got in early, and a lot of smart people will be buying options on this on the downside or on the upside but not everybody, and some people will get really badly hurt. It's actually well, not a game. Right. No, it's not, and, and it, but, but it is, if you want to call it a zero-sum game, right? There, are, there is, for every trade, there is a person that makes money and a person that loses money. Admittedly. That has been, that's the rule since the inception of Wall Street. Guess what? Every time you see a transaction, there's somebody that made money and there's somebody that loses money, period. So, and some of know, this makes this investors... Happening. Um, some of this makes investors invest and some of this makes regulators really nervous. Sure. And you know what? I don't envy any of them. I don't envy the regulators. They have a really difficult time on their hands. Uh, SEC, FINRA, whoever else is getting into this. I don't envy the current moderators of Wall Street bets. I certainly wouldn't want to be caught uh, uh, actually involved in any of these trades. Uh, I don't envy Reddit. Uh, they're in a really sticky situation. It, you know, it's it, I'm enjoying this from the sidelines. It's extremely interesting, and I definitely think it's going to lead to some change. Do you think financial markets are forever altered by what we're seeing? Because after the financial crisis, we saw the participation of models and algorithms and this belief that it's emotions and people making decisions is quite frankly not true. There's a lot of pressures and flows in this market that aren't ruled by human emotion. They're ruled by triggers and by directional change. Do you see the participation of retail investors and the democratization of finance as a a fundamental change in financial markets that perhaps we've not reckoned with before now? You know, that's a great question. I do. I do believe it. But that change has been perpetual ever since the beginning of the stock market. You talk about all these different players that are involved. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is 
uh, when when we had a volatility issue in February of 2018, stock markets did some really crazy things. It's extremely technical and is really fascinating for those that are interested. Uh, but that was a result of a lot of different players getting their hands into this really complicated system, and it crashed the stocks like 5% that day. What we're seeing now is is uh, the acceleration of that. What, you know, the, Every time something like this happens, they make adjustments, they, they correct it, even the dot-com, sorry, also in the, the, the financial crisis. But the speed at which this thing is growing is what's making it really hard to keep up with. I definitely yeah. think that there's going to be changes towards the longer term. And I think that the, 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 the force with which this is happening is slapping everyone in the face and, 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 and forcing them to do something about it now. Yeah, it's one definite wake up call. I can tell you, I have about 20 seconds, Jamie. Are you confident this isn't pump and dump 2021 style? You know, that is such a, it's a loaded question. Pump and dump has very, very specific uh, uh, definition to it's it. Illegal. And, and people need, and it's illegal, of course it is. And so is manipulation and fraud and all sorts of different things like that. In order to pump and dump, you actually have to dump your stocks on an unwitting uh, investor. As I said, the majority, 38 million options were traded yesterday, never in the history of the market. These guys aren't dumping stocks, they're dumping options. Yes, that's exactly, you just buy, buy that put. Jamie, great to have you with us. We'll chat again soon. Thank you. you. The founder of Wall Street Bets there. All right, up next, pandemic-proof drinks. Diageo CNU joins us next. Welcome back to First Move. Shares in drinks maker Diageo are trading higher this morning. Strong North American sales of hard liquor drove an unexpected sales growth in the second half of 2020. Diageo has also raised its interim dividend. And joining us now is Ivan Menezes. He's the CEO of Diageo. Ivan, always great to have you on the show. You know, I read over the um, presidential election that the most Googled, or one of the most Googled phrases was liquor store near me. And I look at your results and I think that was probably true for the entire quarter. And there was a lot of tequila buying going on. Uh, hello, good morning. It, uh, we're very pleased with our performance. Uh, overall, worldwide, uh, we grew 1%, which is uh, putting us back to pre-pandemic levels. But the standout performances were North America, that grew 12%, and China, that grew 15%. And in the U.S. market, uh, the trend towards uh, premium spirits at home and the cocktail culture is alive. And we've had uh, we pivoted very quickly to uh, target our marketing and innovation uh, to the new occasions that have developed through the pandemic. And uh, our entire portfolio is very robust. Tequila had astonishing growth. Don Julio and Casamigos together in the U.S. are up uh, 80%, but Johnny Walker was in double-digit growth, as was Bailey's. Uh, Ciroc grew 17%. And the premium end of the business, people are drinking better, and they're moving to more premium brands. And uh, we benefit from that because we've got a we've got a wonderful portfolio sitting at the top end of the market. Uh, and the, the trends are very encouraging. Spirits is consistently taking share from beer and wine, and we benefit from that. They were, that was the, um, the good news, certainly. And um, I also saw the numbers in China as well, which uh, for those that are looking for evidence of uh, further recovery, it looks really good. The sort of more negative side of the story here is what's going on in Europe and in Turkey. Just talk me through what you're seeing there, too, where we've clearly seen further efforts to, to mitigate the virus spread. And of course, that has an impact on people's ability to go out and, and drink. 
Right. Our, our European business, about half the business is out of home. In the United States, uh, 20% is out of the home, 80% is in home. Uh, and a brand like Guinness, which is uh, predominantly consumed in, bar, in the pub, uh, with the lockdowns has got impacted. So our total Europe business is down 10%. But like the United States, the at-home uh, occasion, uh, we're doing very well. Our spirits business is growing market share and doing well there. Uh, we're predominantly held back by our Guinness business in the UK and Ireland and in Southern Europe, where a lot of consumption is out of the home in places like Spain and Portugal and Italy, the lockdowns impact us there. Uh, but we remain confident about when the recovery happens. Uh, we see our business coming back uh, uh, strongly. Uh, the, the human orientation, and we track this in our consumer research, uh, to want to go to socialize outside the home in bars and restaurants, festivals, sporting events, uh, is very strong. And as conditions uh, get to normality again and people feel safe to go out, uh, we and we're seeing this in China, for example, uh, the recovery on out-of-home consumption has been very strong. So uh, Europe is tougher right now and it has more lockdowns in the restaurants and bars uh, around, uh, uh, around the, uh, the UK and the European continent. Uh, but uh, hopefully things will get better. We're not counting and nor can we predict the time frame. And that's what's going to be my next question. Difficult yeah. to predict. Difficult to predict. And so we're focused on what we can control. We're supporting uh, the on-trade bars and restaurants uh, significantly. We, we've put up a $100 million fund to help them get their premises to be more COVID secure um, we're, we're training the bartenders, uh, our brands are giving back to customers. So we're, we're standing shoulder by shoulder with the, uh, the hospitality industry, which has been significantly impacted and is so important for the recovery because one in 10 jobs sits in the hospitality industry and it's mostly young people. So it's, it, uh, the recovery of the sector is really important for economic recovery as well. Yeah, and business, as you quite rightly point out, has to play its role too. Ivan, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much um, for joining us. Come back and talk to us soon because I wanted to talk to you about the online opportunity, but I've, I've run out of time here too. So as always, more to discuss and we shall reconvene. Sure. So thank you so much. Thank you. The CEO of Diageo there. Thank you. You're watching First Move. More to come. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Dubai is getting ready to host one of the world's largest events this year, the delayed Expo 2020. More than 190 countries will showcase innovations at the event, which opens in October. And if any sector of business is poised to cash in on the wave of change, it's small and medium-sized enterprises, as our John Defterius reports. I need to do you a basket like this. Seven years ago, Stevie Lomas saw a gap in the multi-billion dollar global soap market. She developed a handcrafted product with a key ingredient from the Middle East, camel milk. Using locally sourced natural ingredients, the milk is mixed with oils, placed in molds, dried, and manually cut into bars. 
The camel milk in the soap is really, really gentle on the skin. So it's really good for people with skin complaints um, or people who are sensitive to, to, to detergents and detergent products. Her products, which she makes in a factory on the outskirts of Dubai, relies heavily on the tourist market. But they've been hit hard by the COVID pandemic. Now, thanks to Expo 2020, her camel soap factory has been given a chance of global exposure, as her Expo-branded soaps have received a license to be sold during the six-month event. We're hoping for up to 30 to 40 percent of our revenue um, will be generated by Expo. We're hoping to create a brand that actually represents the Middle East, both in terms of the ingredients that we use, but also the kind of products that we're, we're developing and making. So for me, Expo is all about helping build that brand recognition. The Camel Soap Factory is among 46,000 small and medium-sized enterprises that have applied to be part of Expo 2020. The event, which is expected to attract millions of visitors, has pledged to spend a fifth of its budget on SMEs and has already provided more than $1 billion in aiding the sector so far. There are a lot of opportunities that are going to come from investment to, to partnerships to networking. So we're creating and developing a lot of these programs and activities to make sure that uh, businesses, SMEs, startups come at the right time and meet the right people. For the likes of the Camel Soap Factory, it's a potential lifeline as it emerges later this year into what is hoped is a post-pandemic world. John Defterius, CNN, Dubai. John Defterius there. Right, we're just about wrapping up the show, but I just want to give you a quick spot check at what we're seeing for those stocks. GameStop up a further 16% plus, as you can see. AMC, the cinema chain, down 26%. Remember, that was up 200% yesterday, so with perspective. And the latest stock that's got a big short interest out there, now up some 25% in the session today. Hmm... Early times, many hours to go in this trading session. It could be an interesting one. But that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe. Connect the World is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.